the Hamas attack on 7th of uh, October, uh, which I want to say, and I've said it, I've written about this, and I said it everywhere that I've spoken. You know, I see the Hamas attack as mass murder, as a war crimes, and something that constituted crimes against humanity. Without a doubt, this does not justify or excuse the Israeli genocidal assault that followed it. Dr. Roz Siegel, professor of modern genocide and Holocaust studies, does not use the word genocide lightly. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. I can't say what would be the proper response. I can say that the response now, which is definitely a result of the uh, use of Holocaust memory, and I can talk a bit more about that, is indeed genocidal. It's not a danger of genocide. We're witnessing genocide unfolding right now. Dr. Roz Siegel is an Israeli-born historian who's dedicated his life to furthering understanding about the Holocaust. And he's written several books on the history of the Holocaust in Europe. But his most recent public writings are about the events unfolding in real time. On October 13th, he wrote in Jewish Currents an essay titled A Textbook Case of Genocide. Israel has been explicit about what it is carrying out in Gaza. Why isn't the world listening? On news programs like Democracy Now! and ABC News, Dr. Siegel describes why we cannot ignore the way Nazi imagery and the memory of the Holocaust are being used today in Israel to justify the violence and calls for ethnic cleansing. And it's a case being made in the courts. On November 13th, the Center for Constitutional Rights filed a lawsuit against President Biden, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for complicity with genocide to prevent and not further the most serious of crimes. In his editorial in the Los Angeles Times, Dr. Siegel referenced three of the affidavits filed in that lawsuit. They are written by fellow scholars and experts of genocide. He writes, quote, Their assessment is accurate. Gaza now resembles Ukrainian cities after Russian bombings and invasions, but with levels of destruction and killings that have surpassed in less than a month what we have seen in Ukraine in nearly two years. I spoke with Dr. Siegel once on October 30th and then again on November 6th. This was before the negotiated pause in the bombing campaign and the ground invasion. Our conversation that you will hear today has been edited for clarity and for time. But before we get into it, I want to be very clear about our purpose. This conversation does not diminish the suffering or horror of being terrorized. It does not in any way seek to diminish the loss of life, the taking of hostages. And most importantly, this conversation with Dr. Siegel is intended to deepen understanding about a very difficult and painful topic, a subject that is steeped in history, context, and trauma. My scholarly journey began studying Jewish history. And uh, I have a focus in my work 
on the voice and perspectives of Jewish victims and survivors of the Holocaust. So I'm very much thinking and researching and writing from this kind of uh, uh, Jewish perspectives, and I see it more broadly than uh, just the Holocaust. I think that the perspectives and the voices and the knowledge and the sources of people facing uh, mass violence, state violence, and genocidal violence is uh, crucial to understanding uh, uh, these events, these processes, um, and to thinking about how to respond to them, how to stop them, you know, ideally how to create a world with much less uh, uh, mass violence moving forward. Why and how has has context become a subject itself, like discussing and exploring context? Why has that become so polarized in our discourse? <laughs> That's a great question, actually. I mean, there's there's a there's a number of things to say about this. Without some context, right, we can't understand why things happen the way they happen. We can't understand motivations of the key actors, both on you know senior political and military levels, but also on the ground, how people, how local politicians, how ordinary men uh, uh, respond, why people choose to do what they do. Indeed, what are their range of choices? How much agency do people in different levels right, of uh, society or in, in an army, for example, what, what is their range of uh, uh, choices and agency? We can't understand any of this without about context. This is kind of, you know, the the bread and butter of historical research, right? Context, place and times matter. The other thing that I would say about this that's very specific to our current moment and very specific to thinking about context in relation to the Holocaust um, and Nazism is that, and I say this because we have a lot of uh, Holocaust imagery um, and language related to uh, Israel's genocidal assault on Gaza now. So that's how it's related to the current moment. But the Holocaust itself and Nazism have been uh, and still are certainly in popular understandings, but also in some way in academic uh, research still quite de- decontextualized. Uh, and what I mean by that is related to the idea that the Holocaust is unique, were absolutely exceptional, and that Nazis were presented as sort of evil, right, beyond anything that we could actually comprehend or understand. In that sense, they're really, they're not actually part of normal uh, history, because they're kind of evil beyond understanding, and evil here actually functions primarily as a religious uh, term. This is not a Kind of, this is not a negative comment on religion. Just what I mean is that it functions as a decontextualizing element. It's not related to any context. It's not related to any history. Um, and indeed, when we think about it, think about the way that the field in which I work is called Holocaust and Genocide Studies, right? There's a hierarchy there. I mean, if we understand that the Holocaust was a case of genocide, if we agree on that, then the title of the field is very strange, right? Holocaust and Genocide Studies. 
and it creates a hierarchy basically where the Holocaust is absolutely exceptional and unique at the top of a hierarchy. Then we have genocide, which is actually also a very exceptional kind of crime. There's not many cases that are agreed upon. And then we have everything else, basically, which is all other forms of mass violence, state violence. You can think about ethnic cleansing and other forms of, of uh, you know, horrendous uh, uh, mass crimes. Uh, but they're very down in this hierarchy. And the hierarchy also functions then to kind of separate the Holocaust from everything else, really, even from other cases of genocide. Can you explain why this hierarchy that you're saying treats the Holocaust differently from other genocides is important to understand and, and why it matters now? This is very important because then the Holocaust and Nazi language and imagery that is related to Israel's genocidal assault on Gaza now is not new. We have a history of the use of Holocaust and Nazi imagery uh, in Israeli society and culture uh, in relation to its wars and in relation to mass violence against Palestinians. Um, but what we have now is very, is, is new in its intensity, I would say, um, and also in the way that it's widespread. So the imagery, the discussion about this in Israel from the beginning intensified it much that this uh, attack is actually, we could put it in the frame of the Holocaust. Now, with, this is the largest mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust. That's, that's, that's a fact, right? But, and here we come back to what you asked, the contexts are completely different, right? The context of a very powerful state with a very powerful army supported by all the Western powers in various ways, right, uh, conduct both under this attack of the Hamas, but then also conducting a genocidal assault against a defenseless population in a place that is under siege by this state for 17 years before, right? A siege that was actually the longest siege, the siege of Gaza, the longest siege of its kind in modern history. So this context of a very powerful state and a powerless people, Palestinians, have been under Israeli settler colonial rule and military occupation and racist apartheid policies and uh, siege. Since the 1948 Nakba, that is the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians and the destruction of hundreds of Palestinians' villages and towns and neighborhoods, since then, through all the Israeli mass violence against Palestinians, as I said, military occupation, siege, apartheid, policies, this context of a, of a very powerful state and a powerless and stateless people, Palestinians, is very different than the genocidal assault against Jews during the Holocaust by the Nazi state, but also by many other states in, in Europe at the time, like Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. We can also think about France in this framework. When the leadership in the Israeli government and political leaders invoke the memory of the Holocaust to justify the treatment of Gazans, are you saying that distorts the context of history? So the context of powerful states, Nazi Germany at the time was one of the most powerful armies in the world. In a genocidal assault against powerless and stateless people, Jews, right? So that's a very different context than what we're seeing now 
in Israel and Palestine. If we don't think about context, it's then very easy to make this conflation, right, of a genocidal attack against Jews during the Holocaust and the mass murder of Israelis on the 7th of October now, it's easy to make this conflation if we're in this decontextualized world and falling into the narrative of the self-proclaimed uh, uh, Jewish Israeli state where any attack against Jews anywhere, also when there's this powerful state of Israel, could be then seen within the frame of the Holocaust. And then Palestinians are not actually stateless people under military occupation, right, but actually become perpetrators, all of them, not just the Hamas, perpetrators, violence against Jews. And more than that, they actually, as we've seen now in this kind of Holocaust and Nazi imagery in Israeli society and politics, they actually become Nazis, right? I mean, former Israeli president, Naftali Bennett, uh, uh, interview on Sky News. I believe you mean former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Right. He actually said it directly, right? He, he said that the Israeli uh, assault on Gaza now is, quote, fighting Nazis. The first step until now was uh, to fend off and fight uh, all the terrorists that are still in Israel and uh, kill them. Kill as many Hamas terrorists as possible and protect our people. Uh, as we speak right now, there are a lot of uh, forces, special forces, fighting those uh, Hamas Nazis. Right, so there's context, I would say, is, is crucial. And in this case, it's actually a matter of life and death. We're going to take a short break and then return to my conversation with Dr. Roz Siegel. He's professor of Stockton University of Modern Genocide and the director of the Masters of Arts in Holocaust Studies and Genocide Studies. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, my conversation with Dr. Roz Siegel. He's a professor of modern genocide and the director of the Masters of Arts in Holocaust Studies and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. Shortly after the horrific terror attacks by Hamas in Israel on October 7th, Dr. Siegel began writing and speaking publicly about his concerns that the imagery of Nazis and the memories of the Holocaust were being distorted as they were being invoked. Before the break, he laid out why it's important to interrogate the use of this imagery. And now as we get back to the conversation, I ask how accusations of anti-Semitism fit into this difficult public discourse and why it's happening now. You've just laid out that context is important to interrogate the political use of Holocaust imagery to justify the carpet bombing and military offensive that has targeted Gaza and this moment that we're talking in over the weekend. I have lost count of the number of accusations that have been flying across social media saying that if you offer context about the history of Gaza, which let's just be very honest, most of us do not know, Mm -hmm. that that is tantamount to engaging in (laughs) anti-Semitism. Right. Why is there now an attempt to portray the effort to contextualize the history, the modern history, the political history, the legal history of the region for the last 75 to 100 years. Why is that being equated to anti-Semitism? The last 20 years, Israel has very, very successfully weaponized the discourse around anti-Semitism, shifting it from the struggle against anti-Semitism which was meant since the late 19th century to protect persecuted and discriminated Jews from violent states. Now, in this Israeli weaponization, to protect Israel as the safe, self-proclaimed Jewish state, right, from criticism against it of its violence against Palestinians. Now has shifted to protect the state in its attack against the minority. A result of this conflation of a state and a people, which are two very different things, right? Israel is a state. It's a self-proclaimed Jewish state, but one-fifth of its population, more than 20% actually, are non-Jews, are Palestinians. And since 2018, Israel has a law which replaces a constitution in, in Israel that actually casts all non-Jewish citizens of the state in this case, primarily Palestinian citizens of the state, right, Uh, as second-class citizens. Why do you say that they're second-class citizens? For those who are not following the legal changes in the state of Israel that you're describing? I don't say that the nation-state law from 2018 that Israel enacted, and again, a basic law in Israel, like this law, replaces, is, is a set of laws that replaces the Constitution, basically defines the state as the state of the Jewish people. Anyone else are relegated in the frame of this law to second-class status. So that's an essential element in this conflation of a state and a people. 
Jews are a people, right? And Jews live around the world. And then there's a state. There are two different entities. The weaponization of the discourse around anti-Semitism is based on this conflation, which is related to the conflation that we talked about before, of violence against Jews in the Holocaust, violence against Jews in Israel and Palestine. So this weaponization has a history. And Israel, as I said, its history has also weaponized the imagery of the Holocaust and Nazism. Dr. Siegel, can you give me some examples of what you're saying? I I hear you saying that it's happening right now in the rhetoric depicting Hamas as Nazis. But what I also hear you saying is this is not new. Can you give me some explicit examples? We can mention just a couple of key examples. In 1982, in the context of Israel's war in Lebanon, uh, Israel Prime Minister then Menachem Begin portrayed Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat in, in Beirut. Uh, he portrayed him like Hitler in his bunker in Berlin at the end of World War II. So a completely different context. Nothing that really Arafat and Hitler shared, right? But he, they were portrayed basically as the same. In 2015, much more recent, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, then as now, said uh, in a conference that um, the Jerusalem Palestinian Mufti Hajimil Husseini planted the idea to murder Jews in Hitler's mind, which is completely false, a complete fabrication. Uh, uh, Holocaust scholars, including Israeli Holocaust scholars, immediately said, you know, there was no such thing. Complete, complete falsification. Then, you know, I mentioned Naftali Bennett's quote, we're fighting Nazis now, and there are others. So there's, there's a history of the weaponization of the discourse of anti-Semitism, reached a peak in 2016, when a major global Holocaust memory, the International Holocaust uh, uh, Remembrance Alliance, IRA, basically just, you know, voted on a definition of anti-Semitism, really shifted the focus now away from Jews around the world to Israel. That's 2016. And so we reach today when Israel is assault on Gaza. So this context, right, which of course challenges immediately this conflation, this weaponization, this portrayal of Palestinians now as Nazis and Israel is powerless Jews, right, if you put it in any context, really, it immediately breaks down this this conflation and this, what's really an Israeli propaganda, right? So, of course, the way to discredit it is to portray it, as has been done now very many times in different contexts in the last two decades, as anti-Semitism, right? So there's this normalization of, as I said, portraying, critiquing Israel Israeli policies and Israeli violence against Palestinians and anti-Semitism, now it has, there's an element of normalization of this in international discourse, so of course, and especially after the Hamas attack on 7th of October, which was indeed, as I said, mass murder, it was crimes against humanity, it was a war crime, right? So especially with this, uh, any kind of context is seen as anti-Semitic, whereas it's absolutely not anti-Semitic. It really provides context to how we got to the 7th of October because nothing here started on 7th of October, obviously, right? So how do we get to the 7th of October? But also, where do we go from here? How do we, is there, 
is there a possibility of imagining a different future, different possibilities beyond this violence that we're seeing now for decades uh, against Palestinians? Because if we don't think about context, right, if we delegitimize context as anti-Semitism, if we silence, right, if we intimidate scholars, then we also have to be clear that we're shutting down any possibilities for a different future. And here I have to say that, you know, Israel's, one of Israel's rationales in this assault is that it's a matter of security. The assault against Gaza is not a genocidal assault. It's not a mass violence. It's, it's a matter of providing security for Israel. And self-defense. There are two dominant messages, security and self-defense. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say something about self-defense in a second, but security, well, we know uh, it, Israel's method of military occupation, apartheid policies, siege, mass violence against Palestinians has not made Israelis secure. Quite to the contrary, it has actually turned Israel probably to the most insecure place in the world for Jews, right? Um, so why why do people think that more of it now will actually create security. Actually, we know that with every day that this assault continues, there is more and more danger for regional war. There's more danger for a second front that Hezbollah might open in the northern border of Israel. And the intensifying, actually, Israeli settler assault and army assault on Palestinians in the West Bank threatens to blow up the West Bank, right? Regional war will not make Israelis more secure. Now, I just want to make, you know, say something about uh, the discourse of self-defense, which is very, very important because the discourse of self-defense, this is important to stress, is a matter of international law. And according to international law, by the way, Israel does not actually have a right to self-defense here because of the simple fact that Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem are occupied territories according to international law. And uh, occupying power does not have a right to attack an occupied land in this way. So the right to self-defense applies when we are talking about states, right? Not when we're talking about an occupied power attacking in this way an occupied territory. What Israel is doing on the matter of, of security for Israel it does not make actual sense, And on the matter of international law, it's simply not true. You've described Israel's military campaign as genocidal. Why are you using that term in describing the military operations and response uh, to the horrific terror attack from October 7th? I don't use this term lightly at all. The definition of genocide in international law is in the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from December 1948. The convention is very restrictive. It's very difficult, actually, to show crime of genocide. And the reason is that you have to show the intent, the special intent, or to quote from the convention, intent to destroy, right, a group that is defined also restrictively in the convention as a national, religious, ethnic, or racial group, right? And you have to show the intent to destroy the group as such, Again, quoting from the convention, what does that mean? That means that the individuals are attacked on the basis of their 
belonging to the group. And then there are five acts that are considered acts of genocide, that's killing members of the group, it's causing serious bodily and mental harm, it's creating conditions that are calculated to bring about the destruction of the group, and there's also preventing birth in the group. Hospitals in Gaza are already on the brink of collapse as fuel and medical supplies run out, forcing some women to have C-section deliveries in the dark and without anesthesia. Those are the women able to give birth. We're overcrowded because Israel keeps attacking hospitals. Cases of miscarriages have tripled. Premature delivery has increased by a huge percentage. The key, again, is the issue of intent. And usually, in almost all cases, perpetrators of genocide do not express themselves explicitly. That's why intent is always very difficult to prove. Here we have an exceptional case where perpetrators, the Israeli state, and I'm talking about the political and the military, are actually expressing themselves very clearly from the beginning um, about their genocidal intent. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant's total siege proclamation from 9th of October this has had disastrous effects so far, even without thinking about the carpet bombings. We are putting a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no gas. It's all closed. We're fighting animals and are acting accordingly. And this has no military ration. This is without a doubt a measure calculated to bring about the destruction of the group. In his proclamation, he also referred to Palestinians as human animals. And he also said that Israel will eliminate everything. The Israeli president, Herzog, said that the whole nation there in Gaza are responsible. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not, we're not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up, they could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we're at war. We are at war. We're at war with, at our, we're defending our homes. We're protecting our homes. That's the truth. And then when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we break their backbone. Everyone, 2.3 million people are responsible for the Hamas attacks. So this conflation actually casts an entire civilian, non-combatant population as now responsible. Uh, Israeli army spokesperson Daniel Agari in the first days of Israel attack talked specifically about the thousands of bombs that Israel has dropped over Gaza. It's important to say that this is one of the most densely populated areas on earth. Thousands and thousands of bombs by Israel's own account, you know, many, many times more and in any other cases of bombing Gaza, and, uh, including the use of completely illegal weapons like white phosphorus bombs as documented by Human Rights Watch, right? But Daniel Agbari, Israel Army spokesperson himself, uh, uh, said that the goal is actually damage, not accuracy. There are many other uh, examples, right, of political and military, top political and military leaders making uh, statements that convey clear genocidal intent. 
That's the issue here. Why are they doing this? Because again, this is very exceptional, right? That goes back to what we talked about, the Holocaust and Nazi imagery. Because if we are, as former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said, quote-unquote, fighting Nazis, right, then everything is permissible. If we are fighting this ultimate evil, then this is a war of good against evil, right? And a war of good against evil, everything is permissible. That's something that, you know, I invite readers to understand. This is a fantasy world, right? Because actually perpetrators of genocide always see their victims, right, as evil. Perpetrators of genocide always see the people they attack as people who actually threaten them, right? Uh, That's how Nazis saw Jews. They were afraid of Jews. They were threatened by Jews. They were threatened by how they understood Jewish power. And this is how now Israelis view Palestinians. Israel is awash with annihilatory language, explicit and unashamed, right? Why is that? This is, it's, this is the case because of this upside-down world. We're fighting Nazis. So we have the intent, we have the reason for the intent, and then we have the acts themselves. So this is why I argue, and I'm not alone in arguing that Israel's assault now on Gaza is indigenous. As of this recording on November 29th, the pause in bombing have allowed international aid organizations and journalists on the ground to capture what's happening in Gaza, and the reports and images are deeply disturbing. The death tolls are difficult to substantiate. The numbers rage widely. The New York Times estimates somewhere between 14 and 15,000, while aid agencies around the world estimate the figures may be closer to 30,000. The estimates, of course, do not include those lost under the rubble who could not be recovered or identified. More children in Gaza have died since October 7th than all children in conflict zones in the last few years. And among the living, nearly 2 million traumatized, displaced, and dispossessed are without homes and communities. The massive bombing campaign reveals blocks and neighborhoods leveled, debris and contamination of soil and water and air, schools, hospitals, historic churches, and mosques reduced to rubble. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, my conversation with Dr. Roz Siegel, professor of Stockton University of Modern Genocide and the director of the Masters of Arts in Holocaust Studies and Genocide Studies. As we get back to the conversation, he explains why, in this current moment, he sees something very dangerous happening. Israelis in general view Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the West Bank, of course, since 7th of October, as enemies. Uh, That's an incredibly dangerous situation. It's significant that the genocidal discourse uh, that is expressions of intent to destroy, according to the UN Genocide 
convention actually continue among government ministers and members of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Heritage Minister uh, Amichai Eliyahu infamously said that um, Israel should perhaps uh, drop an atomic bomb on Gaza. You're saying a minister in Israel in the wake of the carpet bombing, the number of deaths, the unprecedented number of young people killed, suggested that the country use an atomic bomb? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This has been uh, brought up by also, by the way, journalists in Israel since 7th of October. Actually, on 7th of October, if I'm not mistaken, you know, we asked, why do we actually have atomic bombs, right? Heritage Minister Amichai Yau also uh, mentioned uh, the possibility that, you know, that the Palestinians in Gaza should all go somewhere else. And he said, Ireland and deserts. What has the reaction been from Israeli leaders and from other voices inside Israel? That's my first question. And second, how are American audiences responding to this? I will confess here I'm learning about this from you. Well, I, I mean, I think it's important to stress that there's a reason. You know, one of the, the largest protest movements around the world now calling for a ceasefire, right, uh, on Israel's attack on Gaza, uses the word genocide, okay? Many people around the world, actually, uh, are very aware of, uh, of what's going on. They're seeing with their own eyes, they're hearing, they're reading, uh, uh, these statements of intent of Israel leaders and ser- senior army officers, and then also, as I said, members, so people with less authority, but still members of the Israeli parliament. And then, of course, there are journalists who already now could easily be put on trial for incitement. And I want to remind everyone that the media case in the International Court uh, for Rwanda after the Rwanda genocide, had a media case, right, against that convicted three journalists uh, uh, for active incitement to genocide during the genocide, right? And we, we mm. see... And that was radio, if I recall. No, 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 radio and newspapers. Uh, three journalists were convicted, and we already see journalists in Israel since 7th of October using explicitly annihilatory language, calling for, you know, for example, a million bodies calling to wipe out Gaza, reproducing the idea that Israeli president uh, Herzog uh, said early on after 7th of October that there are no innocent uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza. You are in Philadelphia. You're on a college campus um, and you're monitoring the news discussions and the framing. How do you see the U.S. media covering the extent of what you are witnessing? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to talk about, uh, to, you know, to assess the, the coverage now uh, okay. in, the US, uh, in the U.S. media. You know, I will say this, that what, what we're seeing, of course, in Israel, but around the world and very, you know, uh, uh, very clearly, I think, in the U.S. and the EU, and probably in Europe uh, even more than in the U.S., um, is this participation in uh, dehumanizing and demonizing discourses of Palestinians in ways that are incredibly dangerous? Palestinians who, uh, who are protesting the Israeli 
Tech, for example, who are displaying Palestinian flags, right, or other Palestinian national uh, uh, symbols, who are calling for free Palestine, for example, are attacked as anti-Semites, are cast as Nazis, actually, right? So not just anti-Semites by Nazis, right? Which is, again, a horrific weaponization of the Holocaust and, and Holocaust memory where, you know, uh, a stateless people under decades of settler colonial, Israeli settler colonial rule, military occupation, racist apartheid policies, siege, 16 years of siege in Gaza, are now portrayed as Nazis, right? And this has been reinforced by Biden and Blinken, by EU uh, leaders, especially in Germany. But I think there is still you know, uh, uh, far more space to consider, for example, the way that Jews in the U.S. and Europe are feeling vulnerable or afraid or scared from rising anti-Semitism and potential against the text. And I'm not minimizing this at all. But when Jews in the U.S., for example, are attacked violently, right, we know what the source of this usually is. It's white supremacy, right? And white supremacists in the U.S., we also know, are actually admirers of the state of Israel, right? Um, so uh, uh, I'm not minimizing this, but in the coverage and the and, and, and public discourse, I do feel that uh, there's much more space for Jews to express their vulnerability and their positions or the display, indeed, of Israeli flags, for example, right, which for me is... Horrific, because it's a violent state engaged in a genocidal campaign. Now, if you display that flag, you know that means that you support that in some way, which to me is, is, a, is, is, is a big problem, to put it lightly, right? So there's much more space for that and legitimacy for that than, for example, right, the Palestinian flag is considered some kind of symbol of anti-Semitism now, calling for free Palestine and the end of occupation oppression is anti-Semitism, Palestinian perspectives are dehumanized, demonized as a scholar of the Holocaust, right? There's nothing more important, actually, than humanizing and centering the voice of those who are facing state violence. And right now we're talking about Palestinians facing Israeli state violence, genocide or not. On college campuses, there is a lot of focus on equating advocacy for a ceasefire now as anti-Semitic? Well, I see this in uh, the frame of the history of the weaponization of the discourse around anti-Semitism in the last 20-some years. So basically from the end of the 1990s, really the last 20 years, largely, Israel has been extremely successful, very, very successful, in weaponizing the discourse about anti-Semitism, that is the historical struggle against anti-Semitism since the late 19th century, from a struggle that was meant to protect right, Jews from violent states, from discrimination and persecution. Now, the discourse has shifted to protecting a self-proclaimed Jewish state from critique of its violence and its discrimination and persecution of a group. So it took this historical struggle of protecting a group from a state and turned it into a, a struggle of protecting a state that's involved in a violent attack against a group for decades, 
Now, this is a weaponization that has become very effective in the last 20 years. There's, you know, various elements to this history, and we can't go into it right now. But because it's a long-term process where Palestinian, for example, uh, very much uh, engaged in the discourse of nonviolent resistance, when there was violent Palestinian resistance, it was said, well, this is violence. We don't support violence. And indeed, I don't support violence. But then but Palestinians engaged in, for example, the BDS, right, the boycott divestment sanctions uh, against Israel movement. So then they were vilified as anti-Semites, right? Because all avenues of resistance of Palestinians against Israeli persecution, oppression, occupation, and, you know, so many elements uh, uh, to this are unacceptable. In this case, from a Jewish supremacist, actually, perspective, that Palestinian voices don't matter, right? They don't matter or they matter much less. The significance of the attacks on the Palestinians living in Israel and the attacks, the recent attacks on the West Bank, alongside the ongoing uh, bombing campaign and the beginnings of a ground invasion in Gaza. How do you see those three events working together? How do you make sense of that? I don't think that they're receiving anywhere near the kind of attention that they should be receiving connecting what's going on in the West Bank, which is horrific. I want to say again, 15 entire Palestinian communities have been displaced, forcibly displaced, destroyed, basically, since 7th of October. We're not hearing about this, right? It is reported, by the way. Uh, uh, Indeed, it would require contextualization that would explain the emergence of Hamas, actually. Uh, But uh, uh, the point is that I don't think that this is receiving enough uh, attention, certainly not enough coverage, because of the, of the way that uh, Palestinian voices and perspectives and histories have been uh, pushed to the margins, delegitimized, all kinds of resistance, Palestinian resistance has been delegitimized. So now, after 7th of October, certainly with the weaponization of the Holocaust and Holocaust memory, uh, it's become even easier for Israel to intensify this dehumanizing and demonizing discourse of Palestinians to continue pushing their voices, their perspectives, their concerns, uh, their histories, their reality uh, uh, away from our view and centering those of Israeli Jews and Jews in the diaspora. And I want to say, by the way, that Jews in the diaspora, uh, unlike Jews in Israel, is an incredibly diverse, right? The Jews, you know, if I think here in Philadelphia, you know, have different kinds of uh, uh, thoughts about what's going on, different kinds of ideas, different kinds of feelings, different kinds of perspectives. Uh, um, uh, so, uh, and I'm not minimizing the fears that many share now of rising, and I, I too, by the way, I have to say, of rising attacking against Jews. But as I said before, we know how that usually happens, right? That's white supremacists. If you are committed to the struggle against white supremacy, and white supremacist exclusion and violence in the U.S., past and present, you have to stand against Jewish supremacy in Israel, which is actually a form of supremacy that emerges actually out of white supremacy in various ways, the way that it's manifested in in Israel today, building basically a white Jewish settler nation state, this intersection of the nation state and settler uh, projects. So this idea that we will position ourselves as kind of uh, liberals, whatever that means, in the U.S. context, 
but as staunch supporters of Israel, whatever happens, we'll display Israeli flags and all this kind of thing. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work also because white supremacists in the U.S., as I said, are admirers of Israel, like far-right extremist nationalists and actually sometimes neo-Nazis in Europe are admirers of the state of Israel. Why? Because they recognize the shared white supremacist value. So it just speaks to the force of this narrowing of identities that is, you know, for many people now, many Jews in the U.S. is kind of coming to a point where this is an earthquake, right, for many, many people, um, because I think they're starting to understand that this primary form of identifying oneself as a Jew by expressing loyalty and support to Israel is, is not just problematic in terms of thinking about the plurality and the diversity of Jewish identities, but it's actually also incredibly dangerous. Dr. Roz Siegel is an assistant professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and the endowed professor in the study of modern genocide at Stockton University. He's also the director of the Master of Arts in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. Before we go, I want to say a word about the conversation and the topic. At various points, we discussed the political efforts and the way anti-Semitism has been weaponized at various points in the political discourse. Raising this does not minimize or diminish the importance of confronting hatred of Jewish people in all its forms. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.